Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. Very last of 2016. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally, not always, uh, that always includes ourselves. Uh, This is episode 39. 39. Wow. Very, very, very serious number. Wow. Exciting. (laughs) Uh, a, a word of warning, this program typically features a respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. You've been advised. I'm going to try to keep the language to, to a minimum this time. Yeah. yeah remember, yeah. T- I tried to do that uh, before, mm-hmm. and I made it, I think, 17 seconds before I dropped yeah, the bomb. it was 24. It was 24, it was 24 seconds. seconds. Yeah. yeah. Hey, wait a second. Camille, is that Matt Welch calling uh, from a tin can on a string <laughs> in Marseille or some uh, some uh, place in well, Southern Well, yeah. Park? I suppose I should, I, finish, I, I should finish the traditional hey, introduction. I'm introduction. Camille Foster yeah. of Freethink Media. They I am joined here in New York by a guy named Michael Moynihan of Vice <laughs> guy News. Named. Um, and <laughs> via Ansible Connection. This is the second time I've referred to it as an Ansible Connection. I don't know if anyone else knows what that is in reference to. Um, we have Matt Welch, who is someplace in Europe. He is the editor-at-large at Reason Magazine, um, at least until they find someone better to do that non-job. Gentlemen, mm. how the hell are you? Matt, where are you? I'm in uh, Klaus Barbie's favorite city, uh, Lyon. In Lyon. Uh, where uh, my uh, wife's family is uh, ensconced and um, uh, having uh, having the time of my life. I, I, it is it is great to be an American in France after the Donald Trump election uh, because uh, there's uh, you, you, you know it's coming right. So you're, every new you know, lunch and dinner we had we had a, a lunch today with a couple with a couple and their son who. Basically demanded that uh, Emmanuel's parents uh, have them over for lunch while I was here because they wanted to, you know, talk about the thing. Um, it's, it's the moment when they go, "Hello, hello." <laughs> <laughs> the throat clearing. This has happened like eight times now, and, and you know, it, it happened in Juan, it happened in Paris, it happened in Lyon. Hello, Matt, and, I'm, and it, it, I always have to interject, Moynihan style. Look, I didn't vote for him. Okay, I don't like him <laughs> uh, before we get started. Yeah. Uh, but but you know what? Uh, the uh, interesting thing about that, and this mirrors, I think, with uh, Michael uh, Michael's experience uh, coming to Europe and talking to people, or at least how he depicted those experiences on the fifth column in previous broadcasts. Who knows if he was telling the truth? Um, uh, <laughs> is that it is super not as negative, even as the European uh, reaction to George W. Bush was. Hmm. Um, th- there is a lot of like. Hey, this could be interesting. A lot of, of questions like, oh, do you think he'll change America's policy towards Israel? Because, of course, French people think that America is, is too pro-Israel. And uh, and then, you know, you, you respond and tell them things, and they change the subject and want him to be more tough towards Iran, because French people want to be more tough towards Iran because they're schizophrenic about such things. But they're looking for possibilities, and they find it kind of humorous, and they don't have that immediate sense of abject horror that we see in the neighborhoods that the three of us live in uh, or our friends in California and such. You occasionally get the, uh, you know, sarcastic, oh, you know, he's 
uh, he doesn't even speak languages like John Kerry. And then immediately as an American abroad, you get your hackles up and you're like, dude, are you really talking about how great John Kerry is? Because don't make me like Donald Trump here. Uh, At least Donald Trump's not going to send fucking James Taylor. Were they supporting Jeb because he spoke Spanish? Was that is that, that the better option? That Jeb could be in yeah. Santo Domingo uh, and order a, a plantain uh, salad or something? Come on. They, they, but, uh, but, you know, Matt, is anyone pointing out you're in Lyon? Um, obviously, big news in, in, in Europe this week is Anis Amri, the uh, suspected but definitely uh, guilty uh, Berlin truck attacker, uh, was shot and, uh, and killed in Italy, but he transited through Lyon. He uh, yeah. that was that right? Am I wrong about that? He had, he had took he took a train from Berlin to Lyon, and this is again why there's you know a little bit of uh, skepticism about uh, about one Europe, and uh, and so you know this always comes up when I'm in Europe too about. Everybody wants uh, the ease of no passport travel because of the Schengen Agreement between countries. But then they're like, why are all these terrorists able to travel between all of our countries without without being stopped? And the number of people in America that said to me, how does he how does he get from 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 Germany to France without any consequence? And a huge man, I was like, well, you know, there's no border controls. You just get on a train. Yeah, there's none. That's uh, I'm I'm more and more convinced that um, that that era is over. I mean, we're. uh, we're talking about, I mean, one of the things that 2016 is it kind of like puts a, a cap on the end of an era that you could say began uh, in 1989 or 1991, whatever, with the collapse of communism and this kind of white, this, this uh, incredible liberalization that we saw worldwide with the end of the Cold War, and not just in Europe, although that's the most dramatic place, but also in Central America and Africa, where all the proxy wars uh, stopped and a lot of this sort of revolutionary nonsense uh also stop, um, you know, you saw this ex- ever-expanding of freedom and prosperity and peace in all these places, and part of that was increasingly frictionless travel in between places. And I think I referenced before, uh, listening to a great lecture by the Hungarian uh, 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 author and uh, historian Istvan Deak from uh, 20 years ago, him talking about... Uh, uh, setting up a similar area of prosperity and peace that turns out to be like the very beginning of the 20th century uh, before World War One, when the you know, technological progress allowed people to do all kinds of wonderful things and you could travel without a passport from the Adriatic to the North Sea or the Baltics and all this kind of stuff. I'm, I feel like uh, being here now really underlines that the era that uh, Michael and I cavorted around uh, Europe and lived over here is, is over. I mean, I went to church I uh, went to a uh, mass, you know, uh, on Christmas at the local beautiful um, N.A. It's called A-N-A-Y. I encourage people to go check it out on uh, the Internet. Just a beautiful, gorgeous Lyon uh, downtown uh, church where uh, my eldest daughter was baptized. And a um, couple of things that are interesting about it, I've never been to a Christmas mass anywhere here in Lyon that wasn't standing room only um, and, you know, like difficult and crowded and uh, triggering my claustrophobia. Um, here... It was one-third empty, um, and this is true everywhere. All during Christmas season, we live right near the shopping district here. Um, it, there's just there, there aren't crowds. People don't go where it's crowded in France anymore. That's just a new thing. That and also outside, even this one church, and it's not like the most well-known church in Lyon or anything like that, there were four armed guards like with their hands on machine guns. And you just see that absolutely everywhere. I, I came back from Paris now. My God, you have to go through two different security checks just to go see a, a museum exhibit um, in, some, uh, in some place. And 
all this kind of stuff, this frictionless travel, that's going to stop. We've already, I think, uh, beginning Jan 1, travelers from France to the U.S., the visa waiver system is is, uh, is changing. You have to fill out a really extensive application now. They basically have to file for a visa. Um, and Donald Trump certainly came to power uh, vowing to kind of crack down on people who don't have their own Muslim situation uh, taken care of. And if you're However you define that, that's a lot of Europe. Uh, so it really feels like the end of an era, and uh, that makes me sad and nostalgic for the good era. But that's, you know, we, as mm. journalists, you live in reality, and you want to cover it and call it by its name. And it is it is post all of that now. We're in something new. Well, well with respect to, you know, calling it by its name, I mean, there there is... Obviously, there have been a, a, a spat of these uh, attacks in, in Europe. Um, France has, has seen its fair share um, of these things, unfortunately. Well, more than its fair share. Um, but, you know, when we, when we talk about sort of borders and crossing them, certainly here in the United States, we have this contiguous landmass. Um, and Germany, I, I Googled, apparently is about the size of like Montana or New Mexico. And France is about the size of Texas. You know, here in the United States, you can drive across the tech. You can drive across Texas and across New Mexico and no one will stop you and ask you for your papers. Um, and I mean, one one wonders, you know, obviously terrorist acts of terrorism are different, but the risk of dying from a terror attack are rather negligible in people's everyday lives compared to most of the things that will probably end up killing you, considering that the mortality rate is almost 100 percent. There, there is Enoch, who I believe walked with God and was not. Um, that is a that's a biblical biblical reference. Um, so, you know, that I wonder, I mean, if we if we are calling a spade a spade, I mean, there, there really is, a, I suppose, another side of this, which is the way that we respond to tragedies like this, the fact that there is this sort of bureaucratic um, dragnet, uh, not dragnet that pops up, but wall, defensive wall that pops up um, and it pops up on the borders and it pops up at the museums that you're going to visit. Uh, and it's not quite clear how safe most of that stuff is making you um, here again with this gentleman and the narrative is still emerging. Um, it appears he was under surveillance in Germany. He was supposed to be extradited from, I believe it was Italy, um, where there is some indication that it, that is perhaps where he was radicalized. Um, and in Germany, he was similarly sort of denied um, permission to stay in the country, having applied for, um, uh, what did he apply for? He applied for refugee status because yes. he's not. He's not. Yes. He's not. Um, uh, or he's he, he's he's a migrant. He, he applied for asylum. Yes, in, I mean he's a migrant. He's not a not refugee because yes. he's, he was Tunisian. So, so they so they denied it. And one yeah. wonders, you know, was yeah. he applying for all of these statuses because mm. he actually wanted to stay in this place, or because he was planning to do something bigger and grander and scarier? Um, and are the sort of bureaucratic things that we throw up to protect ourselves actually sufficient to protect us or do they merely make it make the world seem scarier yeah. and make it difficult for law abiding people to say I don't know board a plane without having their genitalia um, yeah, fondled look, by, I, a, I, by yeah, a man it's security theater and it doesn't or do one. it doesn't do very much I mean you can if there are a number of people with uh, you know uh, mp5 uh, automatic weapons standing out in front of a church. All you have to do is drive the truck bomb in front of the church and uh -huh. dr blow it up and blow those people and, up. And apparently you don't, do you don't need a bomb. You uh, just, no, just you just need the truck itself. Drive as, over As people. many Al-Qaeda and ISIS 
ISIS magazines say. I mean, the size of France and Germany is kind of irrelevant because, you know, France is 65 million people. The Germans sure. have about 80 million people. There's a lot of people packed in. Um, it's a big change from thing in the pack. I mean, I mean, obviously there there has, has been terrorism in, in Europe for a long time. There was a big spate of terrorism in the 1960s and 70s, including, you know, Italy, Germany, um, France less so. But Italy and Germany were the kind of main mm-hmm. – main places where this happened, Eta and Spain, this has been a lot of terrorism there. Um, the point of the, of those terrorist, terrorist campaigns, though, um, were never really to kill as many people as possible, and they were targeted. So people felt less, um, you know, targeted if, you know, Alfred Herrhausen, for instance, who was, uh, I think, a um, president or a board member at Deutsche Bank who was kidnapped when the late, the late uh, Bader Meinhof uh, kidnappings and, 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 and killed. Um, you know, the, the former prime minister of Italy was kidnapped and, and, and killed and executed. There didn't feel like a randomness to it. And the whole point of terrorism, obviously, is to make you feel like you can also be a victim. People tell me all the time, you know, more people die in car crashes. There, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain sense of control there, though. Absolutely. You sure. don't, you don't drive, you don't get in car crashes. You drive safely, you're less likely to get in car crashes. You don't drink and drive, et cetera. There's, there's some measure of control here. This is, you're going to go to a Christmas part market and we're going to run you down in a truck. Yeah. And there's going to be 80 plus people there. So it might not statistically be rational, but that's the point is to, is to make people a bit crazy about it. I mean, it's really interesting now because I, on the 25th on, on Christmas Day, now, some of this is because it's Christmas Day, but an enormous anniversary passed this Christmas Day without anyone really noticing, which is absolutely shocking to me. And to Matt's point, too, 25 years ago on Christmas Day was the end of the Soviet Union. Hmm. I mean, nobody really commented on this. Sure. Yeah. And the thing that's really interesting is if you look at Europe, you look at what's happening now in the United States, all the conversation that we're having now in the United States, everything that's flooding Twitter uh, is about Russia. There is Russia, Russia, Russia. And none of it is, I mean, we're not even noticing the end of the Soviet Union. There are a lot of similar elements, a lot of new Cold War type things. People get very upset when you say that because, because you're not supposed to for various reasons, because ideologically these things are different, but, which is true. But what is bringing so many people in the far right and the far left? Like if you look at Germany, uh, you know, IFD, the, the far right party, and Die Linke, the left-wing party, are both basically pro-Russian. Uh, Fox News the other night had Stephen F. Cohen on Tucker, oh, Car- no. tu- yeah, on Tucker Carlson's show. And a classic old Nation magazine, husband of Katrina Vandenhoek, uh-huh. the, the editor. Classic old Russophile, Soviet apologist, now at a Putin apologist. And, you know, <laughs> Glenn Greenwald was on previously on Tucker Carlson's show. And there's just this joining. And on one side in Europe... Or in the left, you have an old sympathy with Russia that, that, that comes from the Cold War. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, that sort of thing. On the right, they see what's happening in Syria. They see that Russia says it is uh, waging war on ISIS. They see how Russia has treated um, you know, radical uh, Islamists from Chechnya, what happened in the Beslan disaster and massacre. The kids were killed, but... It was against a radical Islamist threat, and Putin has been very outspoken about this. The Russian Orthodox Church is powerful, again, when it was marginalized during the Soviet Union. So the, we're all coming to these with our, with our weird biases. And 25 years after the end of the Soviet Union, you know, again, Mitt Romney was either right or wrong. But you can just say that in 2012, Mitt Romney was broadly right in saying that Russia is the big geopolitical 
power that we should all be paying attention to. He said it's the greatest threat to American power and hegemony. But and, and Barack I, Obama laughed. And Barack laughed Obama laughed. But you know, in the nineteen nineties, in in the sort of freewheeling uh, Yeltsin time, I mean, Russia was you know okay. There was the first Chechen war, the second Chechen war, but they're really. I mean, we weren't dealing with Russia in the same way that we have after a kind of revanchist and powerful Vladimir Putin's comeback. But I just think it's funny, 25 years later, it took the 25 years for Russia to reanimate itself and in in, in end up in a very similar position of, yeah. of, of haunting, uh, haunting America. Well, brief, brief and, and perhaps tepid defense of uh, Stephen, Stephen F. Cohen, who I've certainly been following his work um, recently because he is sort of one of the like, prominent voices and one of the few prominent voices on the left that is pushing back against what I think is, is a fair amount of hysteria. Um, about sort of Russia and their capacity to do terrible and awful things to the United States um, and the the extent of the threat posed by the Putin regime to the United States um, and its uh, its well-being. And and look, it's not to say that there that there isn't a geopolitical rivalry there. um, But the but what that means, like Mm. what the uh, what the actual upshot of that geopolitical rivalry, I think, is important and meaningful. And and I and I also think it's it's the case that, you know, one of the things that I've I've heard um, Stephen do when he talks about things like the conflict um, in Syria, uh, which is still ongoing, is at least push back against the sort of official um, United States focused narrative um, about our role in Syria and what we ought to be doing. And he may, in fact, go too far um, or at least further than I am comfortable going when sort of talking about uh, the situation there. But it is it is certainly true um, to to sort of paraphrase him uh, and to make perhaps a, a less sort of strenuous case. Um, not for Russia, but for sort of a measured evaluation of the threat that they pose and the way that things are evolving there. There is this thing called the fog of war. It can be very difficult to sort of disentangle who is responsible for what. There are the the people who are sort of fighting the various sides in this conflict are sort of porous and people go between them pretty fluidly. Um, it is the case that the United States was looking very closely, was trying their very best to put together a coalition with Russia to go into Syria um, and to try to to take on particular factions there, um, but since has since backed away. And folks who would have been allies are now being generally referred to as terrorists. Like that is a thing that has happened. That's a change that's taken place. And, and I think, you know, when I read the sort of narrative as presented in um, like the New York Times, there is a tendency for a reporter at the New York Times who has a great relationship with the, fo- with the folks at the State Department. They're at least friendly, um, if not occasionally adversaries, to just take on face value the things that the State Department tells you or the things that you will get from someone who tells you something off the record at the CIA, um, et cetera, et cetera. The CIA, the 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 various intelligence um, apparatuses, the the White House, there are political elements of this. There are elements that we ought to be considering. The fact that the CIA are professional liars, like that is kind of part of what you do in the job um, and representing things in a way that you would prefer for folks to understand them as opposed to the way things are, are quote unquote, um, is is part of the job. So I think the tension is appropriate. And, and I do think it is problematic that anyone um, essentially who would step up and say, well, I don't know if we should go that far 
um, is being referred to as a Putin apologist or who would say, for example, well, you don't know that um, and we're going to need some evidence is uh, condemned as a Putin apologist. Like that is that is happening a lot now. He's got, Camille, he's got a 30 year track record uh, of which uh, Michael and I are both pretty familiar with. He is one of the biggest um, intellectual empty suits and moral idiots in the entire United States. I am, I am. If you, everything he's written about Russia and about the Soviet Union, with with, uh, with rare exception, has been heinously wrong. So, uh, yeah, all that other stuff can well be true, and and, and it's worth uh, keeping in mind. But it is no loose smear from Moynihan's lips to call Stephen Cohen a Putin apologist. He is always an apologist for Russia's point of view and action um, and in direct contrast to whatever anyone in America who would contradict that is saying, regardless he- heavily, of whether they're being hawkish yes. or they're just being uh, analytical. I, I, I defer to the both of you um, on, on that matter. Um, I, I was offering a, a very a narrower um, and perhaps sort of related but not specific uh, defense of the man. Um, yeah, Cohen, I mean, Cohen has been, I mean, insane on Ukraine and not even in, in the, the sort of Maidan stuff, but on on the Donetsk kind of uh, separatist stuff. I mean, he's been denying that, uh, you know, the Russians were involved in this and that the, the people were dying, etc. But I mean, if you just go back to the Sovieticus column that he used to write for the Nation magazine, which I have a I have a book copy of. Um, it's like Sovieticus, like Soviet realities and yeah, American perceptions yeah, yeah. or something. And, and, and Cohen, everybody that came along in the Soviet leadership was a reformer mm-hmm. until he finally kind of got it right with Gorbachev. Um, you know, he, he has a great column that I use often when people bring out Stephen Cohen about Andropov, <laughs> who's the <coughs> former head of the KGB. And I believe uh, was in your old neck of the woods in in uh, Prague during the during the Prague Spring, um, it's saying you know Andropov's the great reformer and he's just going to change everything. <laughs> of course, he shuffled off this mortal coil uh, uh, too quickly, and uh, we're all very sad about it. But yeah, I mean Cohen is has been fantastically wrong about everything, and 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 you know it's funny because the counter reaction is that everybody who says. Uh, we need some more evidence is being accused of being a Putin apologist. I think there are some people that are being accused of being a Putin apologist. And in the sense of Stephen F. Cohen, it's right. Um, you know, there are, I guess, people that are skeptical of some of the narrative, um, which I actually agree with one, a few elements of. So, for instance, I mean, a lot of people have been pointing this out, headlines in newspapers that refer to this as the election hack, mm-hmm. which is misleading. Yes. Uh, there was a hack that is wrong there i mean i would say it's misleading because you could narrowly define it as a hack during an election to affect the outcome of an election but to put those words together in a headline an election hack would imply that the election was hacked <laughs> which it wasn't and we have no evidence of and every day from the new york times to reuters etc you see um you know obama uh, ready to punish russia for election hack yeah um well no i mean Vote hack is the other one. Vote there, hack which, is another which is one. Even stronger uh, of a claim, and it's an equally wrong. And there was we, since we talked about, it, I think last week about uh, how uh, in the last you know calendar year, conservative and Republican public opinion on Vladimir Putin and the Russia has just totally, totally gone berserk because yeah. of uh, Donald Trump. Well, the same thing is happening right now among Democratic uh, public opinion about that uh, issue. More than fifty percent, I think, according to a poll that came out this week, uh, believe that Russia hacked the vote, 
not just the election, not just like, uh, you know, some uh, campaign emails, not just the 16-year-old war games wannabes and Scopia, um, but they like got in there in the Diebold machines uh, and hacked it. That is pure conspiracy theory at this point. Pure conspiracy theory, and as listeners to this podcast know, I will, I am ready to believe almost any horrible thing about Vladimir Putin, but there's no evidence of this, and this is rapidly becoming like a, a, a congealed belief system on the entire left uh, right now, and that's it, just important. It, and it's also impossible. I mean, it's important to note that, mm-hmm. well, you know, it could be um, possible that these Diebold machines uh, were hacked, etc. It's actually not possible. Right, the, um, the electronic voting machines. Yeah, and, 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 to, and, to, and to be sure, I mean, there's, the complications of our, of our uh, election system benefit us in, in a kind of protective way, because throughout the country, there are electronic voting machines. Right. Lots of them. Right. And the number of different electronic voting machines, there are hundreds of them. And, and most of them aren't online. <laughs> None of them are online. <laughs> Some of them are locally networked. Right. And you could potentially hack that. But it's really, really, really difficult. Uh-huh. Uh, now, it's funny because some of these m- machines run um, Windows Me. Some of these things run to, run Windows 2000. Right. They run things that they have kind of SD card slots on them. Right. That you can actually, you know, put. The thing is, it's very, very hard because there are paper ballots. And so the, the problem is some that don't have paper ballots. You need ballots. physical access. Yeah, it's just and, a really complicated yeah. thing. You can only do it on micro levels. Right. And also you have to be in a booth for like 25 minutes and set up your laptop as you hack this bloody thing. Yeah. But it's it's that is wrong. But as Matt said, the vote hack, I just decided to. While Matt was talking, check this out and just do that in quotes. In the first thing that came up, BBC News from December 12, 2016, Republicans Ryan and McConnell back Russia vote hack probe. This is how it goes. That's how it goes. Yeah, this vote is how hack. It goes. This is the flabbiness of language yeah. that allows people to Matt's point, And I know Camille wanted to talk about this, too, of the perceptions that people have. Um, and the big uh, one of these big news stories is the percentage of people, Democrats particularly, who believe that that the Russians hacked yeah. the election and and and, and cha- changed the outcome. And this and this is uh, well, this is I think it's appropriate to perhaps do a, a bit of a firm pivot here um, because you know we did spend quite a bit of time talking about the the Russian hack last week, um, and at that time we were sort of wondering what the administration might do. The president was sort of publicly musing about a. a forceful response to the hacking, particularly of the DNC and private organization, not the government, um, but particularly of the DNC. Um, and it, it was suggested at the time um, and has since been affirmed by a joint analysis report uh, from the FBI and Homeland Security on yesterday, 1229. We're recording on 1230. We're dropping this 1230, uh, last dispatch of 2016. Um, but it has since been affirmed that, yeah, the Russians were involved and in multiple dispatches from from this sort of joint, these joint uh, reports, they have suggested directly and not even a suggestion. They have just asserted that the reason for doing this was in order to impact the election. It is not clear um, how they know that. They haven't suggested um, that they have any sort of signals intelligence, um, any sort of human uh, resources they've developed, or perhaps are using NSA um, information that, as Edward Snowden, actually, who is another sort of interesting person to discuss in relationship to this, had suggested that the NSA almost certainly had the goods if, in fact, this was a Russian hack. So perhaps they do. We don't know. The the 13-page report that came out yesterday was essentially three pages of somewhat technical analysis of what was going on there. 
Um, it asserted that this was similar to various other situations, uh, but it didn't actually give us any specifics of any other situations. It didn't actually indicate whether or not there had been any yeah. successful successful intrusions at and, any and government then, organizations. And then 10 pages of prophylactic 10 measures. pages yeah. Yeah. of, of yeah. best practices yeah. for not getting your yeah. system owned by hackers, um, which essentially boiled down to don't be a jackass. Look, and for a variety of reasons, I believe this. Uh -huh. And for a variety of, I think, pretty compelling reasons, I believe <clears throat> that this idea that the Russians are responsible for it is true. I am absolutely appalled, though, the number of people who link to that 13-page report of kind of tedious language that, uh -huh. I mean, look, I know a lot about this stuff, and I've reported on it before, and I'm interested in hacking stuff. I'm interested in you know, IT security, and it's yeah. just kind of a weird, nerdy thing that I'm interested in. So I know, I understand what they're talking about. Or some stuff that's a bit, it's a bit weird and far afield. But you know, it's 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 still there's nothing in it. And what really bu bugs me is the number of people on Twitter and on like journalists who just do not care about the truth. They care about a narrative, and we all know this, which is why this show exists yeah. for so many reasons. But said, hey, you guys all said you want proof. Here's the proof. I look at this thing and I'm like, where's the damn yeah, proof so in much. this? There's no proof in not this. So much. I don't look. I don't want proof. In the way that other people want proof. You say, I can imagine the, hear <laughs> the groans and the eye rolls. I can actually hear your eyes rolling. It's such a, that's, that's how dramatic it is. But if the NSA is onto it, if they have human intelligence, if they have signals intelligence, I don't want them to be telling me about it. The Obama administration wants to have this both ways. The, 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 the scumbaggery of the Kremlin, the FSB, the GRU, the entire intelligence apparatus of the, of the uh, Russian um, psycho state is, is smart about this stuff where they do things and they say, I don't know what happened. I don't know. It's so very bad that Podesta emails get onto a server somewhere. They don't gloat about it. They just go and they do it. And that's quite Obama is so concerned about his damn legacy. He's like, let me be clear. We're going to hack the Russians. Go tell me about it. I don't want to know how you know. I want, you know, I, some compelling evidence exists. You should give us what you can give us. Do not get me wrong on this. You should give us what you can give us and just say, look, I know we have a bad ra track record. It's incumbent upon us to rebuild the trust trust that the intelligence services lost over the past hundred years. Uh -huh. Not just with the WMDs, yeah, yeah. with the Church Commission, etc. We've been bad about this stuff. We are very, very, very good at technical things. Yeah. We're very bad at a lot of things. We very bad at human intelligence getting inside Iraq and you know from 1999 to 2003 and having good source, sources, not things like Curveball, who's yeah. a fantasist that ended up in Germany and you know kind of realigned the history of the Middle East because he had some fantasies that the CIA wanted to buy. Yeah, we are very good though on on these things where we actually have a paper trail. All I have to do is point to Stuxnet and say that that joint operation between. Um, Israeli intelligence services and American intelligence services is one of the most impressive things I've seen in intelligence in the past 50 years. I mean, we don't know about a lot of this stuff. We know that they have a mixed track record. We know, as Camille said, that the entire remit of the CIA is obfuscation, is to is to make sure that we don't know what they're doing. Um, and there is something to be said for that. I'm 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 happy about some of that stuff, but the the, the cry on the other hand, the cry of a we need more evidence. There's a partisan there's a partisan element to that too. Hmm. The people that come out and say the 13 page PDF proves everything. You guys are liars and you're frauds and you're trying to you, you, know, did, make your you didn't read the report. You didn't even read it. But on the other and, hand, we need more evidence 
is people that know that if we have a source sitting within the GRU who's giving us intelligence on this stuff, they'll never know. And we'll never know. And we shouldn't know because that person will end up with a bullet in the nape of their neck or in a prison for the rest of their lives. Matt, and I think there's something to be said about uh, uh, even if this is all true, and I'm with you, Michael, I believe this because I'm you know, fuck the Russians. Uh, <laughs> this is your honest but, Show your work. Uh, That's show good, your, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah I, look, uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, what is it, 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 assuming that it's true, then we can assume that, uh, you know, Putin or someone around him directed uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the leaking and the publication of emails directed uh, from uh, John Podesta. So, okay. Yeah. Now, now, now what? Is that an act of war? It's, it's the leaking of information. Uh, you know, that's uh, okay. So he wanted no, to it's John and- Podesta's fault just because mm-hmm. the, the Kremlin is a sinister operation that has been a sinister operation since 1917, probably before that, too. I'm not going to get into the czarist period, but the, they look at you have a Ukrainian presidential election candidate who now looks like a kind of Slavic version of Manuel Noriega because he drank fucking polonium tea. These are people that do not screw around. We have known this for years, even if we take the best case scenario and believe that, that the Russians weren't involved and the Russian intelligence was not involved in any of this. So many people that are involved in the FSB are, are veterans of the KGB. We know a million actual, true, documented things that come from the Russian archives in 1991 through 93 of what the KGB did. We know what these people do. We should expect that foreign governments hack and they want to screw things up. People say like, whoa, whoa, we've done the same thing. Yeah, 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 we have. But it's not a bad thing that we've done the same thing. I mean, there's this thing, Ariel. Well, sometimes. I, well, I mean, look, I mean, this is big power politics. You want to be a, a player at the big boy table? You got to play with the big boys. And the, the, this, this kind of thing that like, oh, God, geez, you know, hacking John Podesta, as you said, the DNC is a private organization. Uh-huh. So is the Center for American Progress. Sure. This set of mixing of the Clinton campaign and the State Department and the Center for American Progress is kind of, kind of know, Hillary's fault. Kind of Hillary's fault. Yeah. Anyway, private servers. So you don't, you know, no one can figure out what you're actually you know, sending to your closest aides, you know, doing like John Podesta being the pivot man on all of your, your campaign stuff and then falling for a damn uh, spear phishing email. This is not complex. More more than once. More than once. once, Which is, which, yeah. Stuxnet was, we were, we were hacking into rotor boxes made by Siemens to make centrifuges spin a nanosecond faster to blow up the entire you know facility. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. This is like, click on email. <laughs> no, no, you'll get half off at Barney's. <laughs> Barney's store in Midtowns. You know, and then yeah. like, uh, they're like, oh, I can't believe this. They hacked us. Yeah. It's like, no, stop clicking on emails like that, you moron. And, and, and they'd known about the hack for months and months and months. I mean, the, 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 the cascade of failures that is required um, for something like this to happen and to go on for so long um, is, is worth noting. Uh, the bureaucratic ineptitude that is on display uh, is worth noting. Um, the, there's something else, though, um, with, when it comes to secrecy. And at some point, I really do want us to have sort of an extended conversation about this because um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan's um, book on the topic of secrecy yes. called Secrecy That's very good. Um, is, is good and worth reading and um, really sort of 
push the boundaries uh, of my own imagination when it comes to sort of how we relate <laughs> to the the way in which the government protects its secrets. And and look, the fact of the matter is, as a result of the Snowden leaks, uh, we know a couple of things. We know about this X key score thing. Um, we kind of know some of these tools exist. And quite frankly, I sometimes wonder about the wisdom of pretending that it doesn't in mm. public while everyone actually has a sense that this is where it came from and not just saying it, it is not as though people aren't trying to conduct their email communications in a secure way. It is not as though um, if people who are um, sort of cooperating with one another discover that you have a method by which you can, in theory, read every single email that transits through global um, uh, routing points, like that is actually a deterrent. Uh, I don't know that keeping it secret is necessarily useful and you don't have to disclose every aspect of this, but you can certainly disclose, I think, more than the White House has. And quite frankly, I mean, I think that the issue here has less to do with sort of how confident we are that the Russians have done this particular thing. Um, I think it has something to do, however, with the willingness of the media to accept and run with a narrative um, that is offered to them sort of officially with perhaps sort of commentary on background. When you read these these stories about the the hacks and the response to the hacks, um, and, and in this particular case, the response to the hacks are, what, 35 uh, diplomats who we are told are spies that have been shuffled out of the country. One wonders how long you knew these people were spies and why oh, they God, weren't yeah. shuffled out earlier. Yeah, um, several uh, compounds uh, owned by the Russians here in the United States, which, uh, as the, uh, the White House has explained, were effectively used by diplomats to go have secret conversations while they weren't being surveilled. Um, again, to the extent you know these things exist, why does it? Why is it still open? One of them, in fact, the one, I believe the one in New York, um, the, there was a story in the New York Times about Reagan um, actually having previously lobbied some concern about this same building. And rather than it being shuttered, uh, they were barred from getting like pool passes and parking passes sure. by the local city government, which yeah. is just insane. Yeah. This is like during yeah. the actual Cold War, yeah. not Cold War light. No um, swimming. We buy cool we buy a new one in Maryland. Yeah, <laughs> they just want to shut down in Maryland. So, so it's very nice one. Too. It's it's sort of it's sort of odd to to just kind of to consider um, all of all of those elements um, of the story. Sort of the willingness to believe um, the narrative without sort of demanding proof. Uh, the the acceptability of sort of all of this stuff that we're finding out on background that again hasn't really been cooperated in any sort of meaningful sense. Um, and and sort of the third element of this clearly is both the Obama administration and sort of Democrats more broadly, their interest in conflating all of these narratives so that it does seem as though, and I, I do think that that's a part of it. Um, it does seem as though, um, you know, this isn't all our fault. Someone else was involved here. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, And that's, that's, this that's is me, true. this is me sort of that's attributing true. some sure, motive sure, sure, here sure, and sure. I, I don't have specific evidence of it, yeah, but, no, but, but I think there's I mean, even a obvious. willingness to believe it on the part of the, on the part of the journalists. Yeah, so. I mean, but that's obvious. I mean, is obvious the motivation for the big pushback about Russia and, and you know, I, the the administration and the administration's um, allies and Hillary Clinton's allies should really, you know, in a perfect world, not be focusing any attention on Russia because it might also focus attention on their failed Russia policy, sure. which is one of the most catastrophic failures um, that I've I, that I've witnessed uh, in a very long time as foreign policy failure. Um, 
we should always expect, and there is, when an evil government does it, it doesn't make it surprising. And I believe that the Russian state is a sinister in evil state. I do. I mean, I believe like, you know, Ronald Reagan, who, you know, said the, the evil empire. I don't believe it's an evil empire in the same way that it was encoded into the DNA of the Soviet Union of the com in turn, mm-hmm. the communist international of, ex- of expanding an ideology globally. Um, I think that the, 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 the people that run Russia are bad people. I think that's, that is a demonstrable fact. That does not make it any more surprising to me that they commit espionage in the same way that we commit espionage. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's in a state's best interest, especially if they're an expansionist state as um, the Russian government is. But the problem is we tend to be skeptical of governments because we know the incompetence of the people that that, um, you know, occupy the governments sure. that bec- that are that are, you know, State Department employees for life that are now new departments like DHS employees uh, for life. Yeah, here, here in the United no States, excuse. that's the focal point. Yeah, for sure. here, here in the United States, uh, sure. I mean, it's it's less than it is in, in Europe where it's about, you know, the 88% tax rate. Um, <laughs> we should expect, if we have these ideas about the people that are at the DMV and the people that are at the State Department who are, you know, essentially the same class of people and the people that work on campaigns, they might be very clever about you know they went to they went to Sice they went to Georgetown they can give you chapter and verse on you know George Kennan's background in, in in Moscow or something but they're not smart enough to limit all of their communications to something like Wicker I mean honestly this is we get down to brass tacks here yeah. is that if you are still communicating sensitive information on email or Gmail or AOL email especially uh, these days. Um, I don't want to say you deserve it, but yeah. you kind of should have no, expected the, it. Wicker is one of several freely available, what? secure, encrypted communications WhatsApp is mechanisms. encrypted. There's, end to there's end a now. bunch of them. I mean, it's crazy um, that and people it, are, it really are, are, is strange that people aren't so using this, in that, this day and age, especially you know people who who are contending to be the leader of the free world or who will be advising the person who's contending to be the leader of the free world. People who are supposed to be. Uh, I mean, brilliant. it's almost disqualifying, isn't it? That, it that's it, that's how you. T- well, I, I mean, for so me, when, it, it ought to be. But what do you what do you say? So you like when when Moynihan is is g chatting me those racist jokes. Uh-huh. Um, yep. uh, should it be like on a different like platform or like what? Oh, I, I fully expect. No, 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 I fully no, no, expect no. to be hacked. No, because 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 so. because man, I'm proud of the jokes that I make to you. <laughs> ah, um, okay. No, I mean, the, the, I mean, at the at the bare minimum, if you are communicating via Gmail about the Hillary Clinton campaign to become president of the United States of America, and you don't have two-pass authentication on your Gmail, you are a moron. You have to hire some young people and stop being John Podesta. I mean, it's, it's incredible to me. And now the... The, I mean, it's it's great that you have people like the Alex Joneses of the world and those who who concoct these kind of Pizzagate stories or or at least part of the the propagation of these stories, um, because then all the the hacking of these emails becomes becomes about fake news yeah, that comes yeah. out of the emails. Yeah, and there's so many there's so many head fakes here that there is kind of I look I didn't think the emails were that damning to be honest. They, I mean they weren't. They 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 really weren't. They, they and, weren't and 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 there is as as we've talked about here talking about the still, Podesta and the, and yeah, the DNC emails. Yeah, still yet um we we just don't see 
super compelling evidence that absent this particular hack um, and the disclosure of these emails um, that Hillary Clinton would have won. Um, yeah. It's just it, it is far from clear that that's the case. It may have played a role because the election was so close in certain places. Theoretically, it is possible. It is far from obvious. Um, Matt, I mean, we've we've been chatting emails uh, for some time, uh, but but perhaps there's there's a little more. Do you have thoughts related to this matter? I uh, my the, the, the you know uh, pre pivots uh, uh, last <laughs> point I want to make about some of this stuff is that I see a lot of people, including comrades of ours like Rabbi Balco today, uh, uh, tweeting like, you know, I don't like Putin either, but I don't want to see a new Cold War. Um, I feel like. <laughs> The kids nowadays don't remember what the Cold War was. I, as we, I can't stop reiterating, don't like the Putin uh, uh, very much. The difference between what, what he would have to do and what we would have to do to go with, even within 10% of what the Cold War actually was is so remarkable and vast and unthinkable. Imagine having constant, you know, once a month, uh, drills in elementary school to hide under your desk for the nuclear <laughs> winter that was impending. Imagine like the biggest TV series of the uh, of the year are not Westworld. They're not like Breaking Bad. They're all about people's faces melting off yeah. uh, in, uh, in in new uh, new nuclear winters. Imagine entire countries subjugated for four decades, uh, unable to do whatever they want because an imperial Russia tells them, or Soviet Union, tells them what to do and creates a totalitarian nightmare state everywhere, totally consigning them to poverty, pollution, a total lack of freedom. People are escaping constantly. I mean, uh, and, and then dozens, scores of constant proxy wars, revolutions. We are always shooting at one another um, through proxies, sometimes uh, even uh, semi-directly, uh, for 40 years like this. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, the planes are being hijacked. People are, are, are dying right and left. You know, we Putin would have to even be much worse than he currently is, and he's bad. He swallowed up the Korea for crying out loud. He swallowed up half of, of Ukraine. There's no doubt that he wishes that he could be a big badass and as imperial as Soviet Russia or Soviet Union was. He can't be. He's constrained by his own lack of wealth, by the fact that there is an existing NATO alliance, regardless even of what uh, Donald Trump wants to do with it, um, that will be a break on whatever uh, nasty ambitions that he has. So people who are worried about the new Cold War, I guess you, I hear you, it's not going to happen. Unless somehow, like, everyone freaks out and starts shooting nukes, then, then I'm sorry I was wrong. I lacked imagination. Um, but the Cold War defined life on this planet for a half a century. I can't underline that enough. It was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. Half of the map of Europe was just black. It was, a, and I don't mean that in a racial sense. I mean it in like it was dark. <laughs> the curtains were drawn. He couldn't see what the borders were. He had no differentiation between all of these people. They're all just subjects. Um, it was awful. So it's not going to happen regardless of whether, uh, you know, we're going to expel 30 diplomats. It's just a total chunk change. It's, it's it doesn't ch matter. We did that in the Cold War all the time, and that was considered the kind of mildest rebuke that you could make as expelling diplomats happened every day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in Tiradley's, uh tweet and, and, you know, 
um, have great uh, respect for Radley, and I like Radley a lot. I, d- I disagreed with this too. He's been in- invited on this show repeatedly. He's, been... he's he seems well, to be really? agreeing to come. Oh, yeah, oh but, okay. But then I then I like him again. Up. If you said he refused, so, I was going to say I don't. No, like he him. hasn't refused. But you people, yeah. you good people, need to harass uh, Radley. I will. I will harass Radley. I am a big fan of Radley's stuff. I, I, you know, there was the phrasing of his tweet about this when he said Putin is a tyrant. Uh, Trump's admiration for him is worrisome. And then the second point that was uh, numbered one, the second point was we should not start a a new Cold War. I I think the personal pronoun there is what I find curious. We should not start a new Cold War. Mm -hmm. There is a I think there is a sense when we view American foreign policy only through the prism of the United States and that we are all powerful and we are responsible for most everything. I mean, the the elements of a Cold War here um, are, you know, the real obvious parallels mm-hmm. are coming from Russian actions, not American actions. And I think the United States's response to this has been very unlike a uh, Cold War uh, response. Expelling 35 diplomats sure. is, uh, not, is, not is not a huge deal. And, and um, we, we can expect uh, tri- tit for tat, probably 36 diplomats get expelled. By, yeah. Uh, from- and, no, no, no. Putin's trolling. He's, he's going great. He's actually invited the children of the sitting <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. to New Year's celebrations at the Kremlin. So yeah. he can, so he can cool. kidnap them. Um, and like the Joker will come in and then the gas comes in. Everyone dies smiling. That is well, what happens. Uh, Please drink uh, New Year's tea. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, tea. that's great. Polonium, it take, tastes like pomegranates. Um, but he, the, he, so, so, so Russia says they won't expel diplomats, which, by the way, it, it gives you every uh, sense of what Putin feels about the incoming administration. There's no sense to expel uh, diplomats when the administration is about to change and uh, the administration is going to be friendlier uh, to Russia. And so those diplomats will have a different um, remit in, in, you know, three or four weeks. Um, yeah, I mean, to Radley's point, though, to, you know, we shouldn't start a new Cold War. Um, this is something I, I, I would put uh, mostly on, on Russian actions. I think if the, if the United States was doing a Cold War two-step, then we would be moving a lot of troops. Now, look, we, there's been military exercises in Poland and all this mm-hmm. stuff. I understand that. But it, we would be, you know, moving, you know, uh, battleships. We would be moving uh, aircraft carriers. We'd be doing a lot of things. There was a lot of aggressive action. We used to buzz each other up on the uh, up on the North Pole with, uh, you know, F-35, sure. F-60, just buzzing past each other, et cetera, sure, sure. and penetrating airspace and then doubling back. It's not that bad. Um, there is a lot of the rhetoric has, has been the same. But I think that that you see Russia becoming more like it was in, say, 1985. The ideology is totally different. There, Vladimir Putin has no interest in in communist ideology. He's a nationalist. He mm-hmm. is. Uh, he likes the was he liked the expansionism and the greatness of the Soviet Empire, but not necessarily the ideology. I mean, the, what his dealings with with uh, Gazprom and Yukos, et cetera. This is yeah. this is gangster capitalism. It's kleptocracy, uh, but. The past is the expansionist uh, Russia is is something that I think that they would like to to, um, you know, bring people back and bring people back, <laughs> subtly bring them back into their orbit through force of arms or whatever. Yeah, um, there's no need if you don't have that ideology to harass the Estonians to give 
you know, Latvians and Ukrainians and Lithuanians a hard time if you believe that those are independent countries that were rightfully uh, gained their independence in 1989, 1991. Uh, they don't believe that. And, and so, yeah, that element of the Cold War is something that we, who should not start a cold, new Cold War, have no control over. Sure. Well, the, the one thing we do have some control over, um, and, and perhaps this is putting a pin in it, and perhaps you guys will, will disagree strenuously and want to chime in. I don't know how much patience there is for this, but it's our podcast, and we, we get to push <laughs> it a little bit. So um, the, one, the one thing that I, I think we do have some control over is the way in which we talk about this uh, and the way that we contextualize sort of the risks associated with this. And as, as you mentioned, Michael, I mean, the, the probing is going both ways. Um, the United States is almost certainly probing various important things. There was uh, a, a dust up with Germany, a very close ally, not sure. too long ago, um, because sure. they discovered once we found out about the extensive yeah. surveillance stuff that was happening overseas. And I'm that shocked that there's gambling Americans. going on in this establishment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that when the Germans found out, they they were they were upset. Yeah, uh, and they pushed back. So look, this is this is happening. It happens with in between rivals, and it happens with uh, with allies. What what seems to be the most important thing and, and most of the sort of narratives um, in the media, there's a lot of sort of what um, and and um, how and why um, th- there's not a, there's not as much sort of what we ought to do about this um, that I think is sound and reasonable. Um, and there is some practical stuff that we can do. Um, and it is along the lines of like two step verification, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like there are just best practices that you, you shouldn't just write this 12 page report. Like I want to know that every sort of government entity that is keeping, say, databases of American social security numbers and various other important information, um, that it is encrypted and it is secured in serious and significant ways. And for all of the this is, in fact, theater. Expelling 35 odd people that may have, in fact, there is no indication that they had anything to do with these particular hacks, closing facilities that, again, it is there's no indication that these facilities had anything to do with these particular hacks Um, like that is theater. And it's not clear to me what the White House, what the administration, what the incoming administration plans to do to ensure that stuff like this doesn't happen. And it's not clear to me, frankly, that the public um, has really responded in a way that is sane and reasonable um, to the like level of threat that's out there um, online. It, you should be incensed when Yahoo um, is broken into and that they like lose a million um, I users' a billion. credentials and, and passwords. Was it a, bil- it was was it a billion? billion? It was yeah. a billion credentials. I so, I mean, it, it's just, it is insane. The fact that that sort of stuff still happens um, is is pretty indefensible, especially for, for organizations um, with that are supposed to be like technical experts. So I, I hope that we talk about those things. And as you know, I am I am as I am have a tendency to point out in other contexts, like with respect to race, like the conversation about this very exotic sort of spooky and scary thing, uh, the bigger, glossier story, the sexier thing. Um, oftentimes crowds out the more practical conversations about stuff we can actually do to make things meaningfully better. Um, and there is a risk of doing that. So if if perhaps what Radley is talking about when he says, let's not start a new Cold War, um, has something to do with sort of the way that we approach the conversations um, and the sort of the tone of them and the extent to which we are sort of being sort of thoughtful and measured in evaluating risks, I, I think that that is good and appropriate. Um, but we also shouldn't, shouldn't delude ourselves about risks. 
um, posed by various regimes. And on another date, we'll talk about sort of the evil evilness. Um, yeah, let's and, talk and, about. And but we we, we talked about this the other day, and there's a pivot here that. We talked about this uh, conspiracy theory that was bubbling up um, uh, that Barack Obama was uh, signing a piece of Christmas yes. secret legislation to shut down <laughs> Breitbart.com or any alternative news yeah. websites because it's kind of related because, I mean, this – Camille, you can give us a little background on this. I mean, this is essentially a um, silly and, 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 and speaking of theater, theatrical uh, countermeasure, but not uncommon in the history of American – uh, politics and foreign policy to uh, create a anti-foreign propaganda uh, act that would allocate money to be wasted. There would be a joint um, entity created. Various members of the intelligence community who pretty much already work yeah. there would get together to share information and discuss best practices for combating propaganda. Yes. Um, how do you define propaganda? They do. Yes. Um, it, it it does sound uh, to me uh, pretty pretty wasteful, and and rather than it actually being a separate piece of legislation, it appears to have been a part of sort of a broader um, like defense um, uh, authorization uh, type bill uh, where they're they're giving out some monies and and doing some rather routine changes, and and this small thing is there. There were some corners of the interwebs, not huge, not particularly influential, which is the other dynamic in this fake news narrative. You can find a site or five um, or a hundred people that have shared something on Twitter. Uh, that doesn't mean that this is a, a phony story that is gaining a tremendous amount of steam. Um, and this may, it's the, it's, the, it's, it's, it's how it's how uh, BuzzFeed and a lot of these places, I don't want to say uh-huh. about BuzzFeed, only exist um, when they Start the whirring of the outrage machine uh-huh. when you can find five, 20 tweets. 28 yeah. people that said the new movie Sing has a racist element to mm-hmm. it because of blah, blah, blah. And they go on Twitter and I always scroll through the tweets that are embedded in the story and just to see if any of them are verified and none of them are. And usually, you know, seven of them have have followers. It's the equivalent of making a news story. Uh, if I went with my recorder and my journalist notebook and a hat that had the word press stuck in the brim yeah. and went to uh, the bus station and heard the guy that was, you know, redolent of his own urine yelling about something that was happening and wrote a story about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the difference is this guy has a computer and they're making stories about this stuff. So I don't, yeah, in this one, I don't think it was a it was a big thing, but but it shows you how little people know about, as Matt was talking about, as, about the Cold War. Uh-huh. We don't even recognize the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Soviet Union, really, not not a lot of comments about it. And, you know, look, the Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty and Voice of America, these things existed. Uh-huh. And we tried to create these still, things. Still exist. Still exist. Yeah. That, uh, that's w- actually, those were changed by the same uh, the same bill. Um, they got rid of the Board of Governors, I believe it's called, who are responsible for- Yeah, there's been a bunch of keeping, controversy. Keeping things going Yeah, there there's been a lot of controversy. have essentially yeah. devolved more power to the White yeah. House. But it's, it's yeah. like a, a $750 million a year operation that is- of negligible importance and significance. It used to probably just be shut. It used to be of importance and significance. There's actually a great book about this by the wonderfully named Arch Puddington, who wrote (laughs) a, uh, uh, Matt Matt will remember. That is not a real name. Yeah, you you should remember Arch Puddington. I think he's at Freedom House now. I think he's still alive. Uh, Arch Puddington wrote a book called Broadcasting Freedom, which is a very, very good, um, actually very balanced book about Radio Free Europe and the influence. Now, Radio Free Europe, the difference between Radio Free Europe and Voice of America, Voice of America was the voice of the United States. Radio Free Europe devolved 
um, local stations into the hands of exiles of people that left Romania, left Hungary, re- left uh, che- uh, Czechoslovakia, and then broadcast into their home country yeah. um, news from the outside. And that was actually very important to the people that live there. Uh, in this world, it's quite different. And so it seems to be that this bill that people are people are getting some people are getting a little exercised about is designed to counter things like RT. RT was actually knocked offline today. I don't know if you saw oh, that. Is that right? And it seemed to have been knocked offline on a few cable providers, too, which we <laughs> wonder where that came from. I, I wonder who did that. Yeah, I have no idea. Why, uh, why would someone do something uh, like that? Sputnik and these things. And they, <laughs> you know, they have, they have an influence. It's, I, I'm trying to imagine the equivalent uh, Russia version of that. Sputnik and RT are a lot like Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. Now, hear me out here. Uh-huh. They're not in content because... Well, RT is a hell of a lot better than uh, Radio Free Europe. Or... Oh, God. That is a shanda. I just mean in terms of... I didn't mean in terms of quality. I don't mean that. I just mean in terms of appearance and production. Oh, God. No, uh, that is an outrage. Maybe maybe attractive hostesses. Well, that's different. That's what I meant. I mean, but it's Radio Free Europe. You can't see the attractive hostesses. I don't know why you're still doing that. Um but but the, the what what they've done which has been 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 pretty interesting and it's actually taking a page out of the the radio free europe book is you can't imagine this happening in russia today mm-hmm. could you imagine if the united states had a pro us pro uh, administration, whether it's the Obama administration and I guess Trump administration is slightly different, uh, station in Moscow, yeah, operating in Moscow that used local journalists that hated the government of Vladimir Putin to come on every day, 24 hours a day, to blast that government and create bizarro conspiracy theories about that government and then broadcast them and actually make them take off and have them be fairly influential. I kind of suspect that the uh, Putin regime, who has, has um, um, allowed basically zero uh, television media to, to – I mean, I mean, Rain TV was the last one, and that's being you know, yeah. sort of compromised now. Um, they wouldn't allow that. Sure. And, and, and so it's a really interesting thing that in, you know, I used to go into that studio periodically um, in downtown um, Washington, D.C., a stone's throw from the White House, yeah. where you sit there and, you know, in between segments about how 9-11 was an inside job um, <laughs> and the United States government was behind it, you would have a, a bunch of story. Uh, shitheads like me waiting to, to go on. I, I, I had a very limited run there where it was because a friend of mine had a show, mm-hmm. and then I stopped in, doing it. In fairness, we would go on there uh, because uh, Alona Minkowski had a show, yes. and she was both uh, yeah. uh, hot, which is helpful, and uh, also a friend. And <laughs> We, should, we and should get her on the, Alona's on the, great. On the, on the podcast. She's very smart. She's still, yeah, she's we, she, would be, she would be great, and she's also very friendly to libertarian ideas as they were on that show, and she rolled her eyes aggressively at the um, the Putin-esque stuff yeah. that would leak in. And also yeah, like by the way, her, 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 her mother is a member of uh, the Duma for United Russia. And, yes, uh, yes, uh, yes, she is. And, sure, sure. Uh, and, she, and, and her mother was also a, a champion um, Olympic uh, figure skater during the Soviet huh. Union. But she is, I mean, I've seen her recently tweeting very critical things about... about um, about uh, Putin and and the Kremlin, but but you know it, it is really interesting how RT has become uh, successful. I'll give you a, a brief story that I I shouldn't really talk about, but Uh-oh. I'll I'll yeah. maybe I'll maybe just kind of tease something keep, for keep, next week. Keep this between us, friends. <laughs> uh, next week on on the show that um, I am a correspondent on uh, on HBO, uh, the Vice News Show at seven thirty. Uh, I have a piece um, that will be up next week. I I, I presume. And editing it now, and I went and had a visit 
with Alex Jones. Alex uh, Jones. Yeah, Alex Jones doesn't see many people. And you can look, I mean, it's very hard to notice this because if you search Alex Jones, there's 40 million videos mm. of Alex Jones, you know, ranting and screaming. Um, I will say that um, personally, I think uh, Alex Jones is actually a very nice guy. Oh boy, uh, here it comes. Oh no, no, no. Don't worry about that. <laughs> um, I think he's out of his mind. I, I just, he's, he's, he's a funny uh, kind of charming guy at times who's, who's out of his mind. But I walked into a room and there was a, there was a whiteboard in which he was, he had, or his staff had, you know, uh, on two, two there's two axes and one, one was uh, tyranny and one was freedom mm. and it was uh, media operations and uh, who was tyrannical and who was free. And then it was state controlled on the other axis and, uh, and uh, um, corporate controlled on you know, the other end of it. And on the free end of this, uh, I'll just say this, on the free end of this, he had um, uh, next to InfoWars, <laughs> which was his own operation, uh, was uh, Sputnik and RT. Huh. And I asked him about this and he's like, well, I find their stuff is the most accurate and whatever. And, you know. Also, very scientific. Yeah. Alex has a very, very, very uh, large following. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so the, the instinct for people to want to counter this propaganda is interesting because the, in the past, during the Cold War, we, were ca we weren't countering propaganda. That's not what Radio Free Europe uh, was doing as such. We were providing information because everyone in those countries knew it was propaganda. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a competition of information as as much. Uh -huh. um, you know, obviously we're countering. We're giving somebody else a new source because they were completely choked off. There was no access. You couldn't get on the internet if you spoke a different language and, and you know look at the New York Times dot com. So it was the only other news source. So what we're doing now in this the, the, the idea behind this uh, counter propaganda thing is that RT and Sputnik are actually successful. I have had friends to me over Christmas cite things to me that I trace back to RT. Uh -huh. Cite news stories to me, quote unquote news stories that I tr trace back to RT. The Russians are very, very good at this. Someone inside of RT who wouldn't speak on the record about it told me a while ago that, and told me the person responsible for this, that the lurch towards conspiracy theories was deliberate. Mm. It was a deliberate strategy. Do they believe that 9-11 was an inside job? No. The people who actually are running the operations in, in RT and yeah. Washington, yeah. I do not believe that. But they do know how to string up some flypaper yeah. and get the fringes to come to RT. And that was engaging conspiracy. They don't do it as much anymore because they have a bigger, broader audience. And they, they, they do conspiracy theories about uh, Russian enemies right now, basically, you know, serious stuff. But. Yeah. One of the uh, um, uh, uh, things that is irritating about our lack of uh, national historical knowledge about the Cold War uh, is precisely um, the way that the Cold War analogy was, was just botched so uh, tremendously during the run-up and aftermath of the Iraq War, when people kept making this facile comparison to, we're going to see, you know, velvet revolutions breaking out all over the Arab world, which is an incredible misreading of, of, of every possible historical antecedent here. And they use it for broadcast services as well. So we started, and Michael will remember the names because his brain contains memory for that, although he's such a drunk, it's really hard to see how that all works out. Uh, but uh, Radio Nusra, right? Or Al Nusra? Uh, we created two... Uh, uh, no, Al, Al, Al Nusra is the Al-Qaeda offshoot in Syria. We called it, we, we created Al-Hara 
in uh, Iraq. Iraq, yes. Yeah. There's two of them that we created, basically, both of which were total debacles precisely because we didn't learn the lessons of RFE, Radio Free Europe. I've known dozens of people who worked for Radio Free Europe over the years, and Arch Pennington's book is great, and, and, and you really can't say enough about what an idiosyncratic and totally valuable uh, organization that was. And I'm, this, I'm saying this is someone who, who instinctively despises propaganda and thinks that whatever that bill was, and I just glanced through the language of it, is, uh, is dumb and, and, and it won't work to whatever it's uh, intended to do. But RFE, those exiles who were in Munich sitting there broadcasting their stuff, they hashed this out between themselves, and they concluded that the better journalism that they did, the more effective that they would be, and that would include uh, having journalism that was critical of America's response to their various things, and to be completely independent. They thought about this. They worked through it uh, constantly. They had battles constantly because of it, and that is the reason why it was effective. They did it just like kind of like the BBC is and has been over the years, um, pretty good as far as state propaganda outlets out there because they created kind of a quality broadcast there sort of in that mold that is rare usually when a government creates owns controls starts uh, media it is by definition garbage and it's uh, in in the the lap of the sitting government so this is a real real, real rare exception to that and because of that it was successful um, and and then they, you know it's, it, it's a model that they couldn't even begin to think about having the transplant they just thought oh let's have our own propaganda broadcasting out there um, uh, out in, into the uh, in the Middle East and it, it, it was total profound failure and it, it, the same, same thing is true with uh, Radio Marti into, uh, into Cuba, Cuba and everything else everything else has been a failure the VOA uh, which was more propaganda sports in America was more propagandistic towards East Bloc uh, and, and Russia, um, it was most successful when it was least political, when it was broadcasting jazz. Um, and jazz, it's hard for us to imagine this right now, but jazz is a special place in uh, in, in like uh, anti-communism in Eastern Europe because it was it was really cracked down upon. It was seen as individualized, corrupt, mm-hmm. decadent American Western uh, artistic expression. It's certainly seen that way in it. the United States as well for, <laughs> for a good while. Yes, um, uh, and uh, so uh, it's uh, it, it's remarkable how much we screw that up, and we'll continue to screw that up. It's very difficult to to learn a good lesson uh, from the Cold War, and we always figure out a way not. Yeah, to do that. and and it's it's interesting. And before we before we leave this, um, it, certainly there were folks on the right who were concerned about this. Uh, fairly standard defense um, authorization appropriations uh, bill that the president signed on the 23rd of December, uh, right before Christmas, um, and and sort of these, these phony narratives had spun up. But with respect to sort of Radio Free Europe and, and all of these other publications, um, there are some more reputable sources that had spun up their own uh, somewhat contrived um, narratives, where at least I think that the, the hand-wringing was pretty damn exaggerated. Um, and there were some important things left out. Tara Palmer, uh, for example, at Politico, a much more reputable site um, than uh, some of the places that were carrying this other myth, has a, a piece from 1212 titled Trump Inherits State-Run TV Network with Expanded Reach. Um, and uh, the the article itself goes on to paint a pretty dark, uh, bleak picture um, from my own reading of what Trump and Bannon might do uh, once they're given control of this $750 million media empire um, annually uh, for the $750 million media empire that they will be pumping propaganda um, into into countries around the world. Uh, I, 
I am uh, sort of skeptical of the effectiveness of a program like this. Uh, I think it should probably just be deleted uh, altogether for the most part at this stage because I don't know how useful it can be in most contexts. Uh, but I'm also not particularly concerned about uh, about the Trump administration uh, claiming control of these things and, and doing bad stuff. That being said, uh, there is a, a bit of a pivot there. Um, I mean, we can, I think, talk about the president's legacy a little bit here at the at the end of the year. Um, we, we've got sort of hours to go in 2016, uh, and we've really got weeks before uh, Donald Trump's inauguration um, as president of the United States. Um, and uh, it is still not clear who will be performing there um, at that inauguration. Apparently, Kanye West is officially officially not going to be performing. So I'm definitely not not interested. Um, but the other thing that isn't clear is, you know, how people will sort of contextualize Barack Obama. It is clear that there are plenty of people that want to sort of lionize him and they're, they're thinking um, fond thoughts already. Um, about, you know, what was and what might have been uh, with Hillary Clinton um, and, and worrying a great deal about Donald Trump. But, you know, part of part of what's happening here is we're trying to figure out, you know, a lot of people are still trying to figure out what Obama's legacy is. And, and there was uh, an exchange with David, David Axelrod, I believe, on his podcast and the president uh, where the president was talking about Hillary Clinton's defeat um, and certainly sort of the decimation of the Democratic Party. Um, and the the loss of the White House um, and and both houses of Congress um, to the Republicans, the hated, loathsome, awful, stupid Republicans, um, is uh, something that the president doesn't want on his track record. And when he talked about this with David Axelrod, he said, "If I'd run, we would have won." Um, which you know, it's it's interesting I, that that all of these things are unfolding. So there's certainly that there's that possibility, what might have been if Obama could have run for a third term, would he have run one? Um, but I think beyond that, you know, his legacy um, on with respect to his his accomplishments, he's got sort of two signature legislative accomplishments, a massive stimulus bill that he passed when he first got to office, which was famous for two things in my estimation, a cash for clunkers program that paid people to destroy perfectly good cars and buy new ones, um, which uh, sounds stupid um, and is. And um also, he invented a new economic um, uh, unit, jobs created or saved, totally imaginary nonsense. Um, and uh, the second thing was uh, the Affordable Care Act, which is failed in any number of important and fundamental ways. Um, but parts of it are clearly here to stay. Um, I wonder I wonder what what you all sort of make of the administration in retrospect as you sort of look backwards, what kind of stands out to you in terms of important flops uh, and perhaps even sort of bright spots in areas of success. And, and I should say, you know, for myself, I don't I don't think Barack Obama is a uniquely bad president. I, I often get really frustrated um, because people don't don't seem to appreciate how pedestrian he is uh, in terms of sort of policy um, and and lameness uh, on any number of important issues, especially places where he gets a lot of credit, um, like uh, like criminal justice reform. Um, and even for um, the various pardons that he's been issuing um, at a very high clip, which we can talk about in, in some specifics. But I, uh, I defer to you, gentlemen. Apologies for the uh, overlong the, uh, the biggest, uh, I think the biz- biggest successes and the things that will be uh, considered uh, the biggest successes about the Obama presidency are things in which he actually personally didn't do much. It's what he didn't do. 
uh, right? So, I mean, I think we'll look back on this. And I wrote a column three years ago um, about this, uh, uh, saying uh, pro- uh, provocatively for a reason audience that it is certainly possible that we will look back on the Obama presidency as being the most libertarian of any since the end of the Cold War. Tall and smidge. people were completely outraged tall about smidge. saying that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, super tallest midget argument. And I think I uh, use that phrase. Uh, that's back when we could still say midget. Uh, then, the, the podcast has and, just and been it, canceled. And it's because um, we will look back and say, oh, you know, he did gay marriage and drug legal and pot legalization. Um, no. <laughs> he stood in the way of those issues, uh, you know, very strongly uh, for most of his uh, t- term. But eventually, um, after dithering, once Colorado and Washington voted to legalize marijuana, dithering for nine months, and after having uh, done more raids on uh, medical marijuana dispensaries than George W. Bush did in eight years, uh, in his first four he didn't crack down, which, of course, he wouldn't have been able to do because the feds don't have enough cops uh, on doing this. But still, that happened on his watch. It seems irreversible. I'm glad that happened um, to the extent that uh, he finally uh, starts to think about having his courage to maybe say marijuana shouldn't be totally super-duper illegal uh, at the very end of his presidency, hinting that he will we'll say that completely once he's safely gone, you know, low five, I guess. Um, but it's uh, so it, we will give him credit for things that he didn't actually do much on gay marriage. He let Joe Biden issue a trial balloon. I think 2013 it was. And yes, that helped create the political climate that helped you know, the Supreme Court gets in there usually 10 years after the U.S. public opinion is, is in, a, in a place. Um, and that kind of ratified this thing. Yes, that happened under his watch. Cool. I'm glad um, it is something that he didn't campaign on at all. Um, and didn't have the courage of his own convictions and had to send uh, Joe Biden out there. Um, and there's not much else out there. What, what are you going to point to as a big success? The biggest success that people will be pointed to, and I should say I'm going to be debating John uh, Chait from New York Magazine on uh, on this in New York on January 17th and look for some uh, information about that in the, in the future. He's got a new book out. I forget the title of it, uh, so I won't get any points for it, but uh, <laughs> uh, basically that Obama is the best president ever, <laughs> more or less. Um, and uh, the only argument you can make saying that Obama is the best president is Obamacare is awesome, um, which it isn't, um, and uh, two, uh, that he prevented uh, the uh, the financial crash of the fall of 2008 of completely uh, subsuming the entire global financial system. He saved us from mm. ruin. Mm. Um, that is a totally unprovable thing. Um, just as it is unprovable, uh, those of us who argued at the time, and it was a lonely argument, it was an argument not shared by the Wall Street Journal editorial page. It was not shared by the Economist magazine or the Financial Times. It was reason, and like Matt Kibbe and a couple of other people, uh, crazy enough, and some people in the House of Representatives too, um, saying that uh, both of the uh, bailouts, the George W. Bush bailout, and then the Barack Obama stimulus were the wrong way of looking at this. You should have let uh, large financial institutions fail, um, and that bankruptcy uh, would have been okay uh, rather than bailing out all of this stuff. And what we argued at that time was that if you get in there um, and bail everything out, and if you don't allow for uh, bad, risky behavior to end badly for the people who engage in it, 
then what you do is uh, you're socializing risk, and you're also creating such government intervention into the financial industry and into the economy in general that you're going to have this low, stagnant growth forever. You're going to become Japan. I had uh, Obama on the cover of Reason in 2009. Uh, I don't think we can't do it anymore. Uh, we're turning Japanese, and he's like having hot chopsticks, and he's doing the Mickey Rooney face and everything. Um, uh, and, and, and that... Prediction came true, but it's it's also a counterfactual. We can't we don't know what would have happened if he would have behaved differently if there hadn't been the stimuluses and the bailouts and the Detroit and all that kind of crap. So you're left with this unprovable thing. Obamacare, you have to say it's great even though it's not. Uh, and then he killed Bin Laden, and I'm glad he killed Bin Laden. High five for killing <laughs> Bin Laden. Is that a great presidency? That and allowing these things that were that society was doing, which was pot and gay marriage. Uh, not totally getting in the way of that. Uh, and the other thing, and I'm sorry for talking for too long about this, but um, just that I consider his criminal justice record to be, uh, will in retrospect look much worse than it currently does because he did not take advantage of the political moment that we had Agreed. in the last two years. Yeah. He did not take advantage of Ferguson in a way to actually engage in those real structural reforms that we didn't discover in 2014, which the federal government and the people who've been working on this stuff for decades have been talking about forever on civil asset forfeiture reform, on, on all kinds of, uh, of, uh, of prosecutorial immunity, on the shittiness of eyewitness testimony, of yeah. evidentiary standards and all he could have done a bunch of stuff on that, and instead he had commissions and lunches, and he talked about guns. And that is a and he he commuted a lot of people sentences. Great, I'm glad, but we didn't really do a whole lot on the federal level. He could have led on that, and he didn't. And I think it's a grossly missed opportunity. Yeah, no, I I, I would I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And and actually, uh, I would I would um, actually recommend to all of the listeners as well that they check out um, Lillian Cigars. Um, post at the uh, intercept from the 24th of December title of which is um, Obama's clemency problem and ours. Um, and there is a, a really, it's a, it's a good long read. Everything about it isn't great. Um, there are things I, I'd quibble with, but that's okay. Um, but the most important factor here um, I think is that the Obama administration is enormously proud of the fact that the president has eclipsed everyone else when it comes to extending clemency um, to, uh, to, particular classes of drug offenders, particularly people who have not um, have no record of violent crime. Um, and the, the truth of the matter, however, is that the president has played it enormously safe uh, when it comes to granting these clemencies and has not taken bold action, has waited until the end of eight years um, to do this yeah. and has avoided situations that are just obviously egregious where people are mm -hmm. serving life sentences for marijuana crimes. Um, it, it, it is... It is, in my in my estimation, <laughs> not laudable. It's indefensible. I, um, I was, and the president, yeah. like he 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 has pointed to the fact that he has rejected like fourteen thousand applications uh, from people who, you know, some of them may actually be engaged in violent acts while they're in prison. Um, some of them may have committed a violent act as a kid and may be serving time on related to a drug sentence. Now, look, I get it. I get that if you let people out and they commit violent crimes, this could come back to haunt you and people will badmouth you. The right thing to do, the brave thing to do um, for an outgoing president um, who wants to actually lead and be courageous is to be fucking 
courageous. Um, and look, there are people who shouldn't be in jail, who are serving unjust sentences, who are serving ridiculous and stupid sentences for things that ought not be crimes, um, things that the president himself has engaged in. Uh, and I, I think it's uh, it is the height of hypocrisy and indefensible uh, for him to not do more. And, you know, for for all the talk of, you know, evil and good administrations, there is something about that that other thing, um, the the sort of standard the the. The thin, the thin bar or the thin barrier that we have for sort of thrusting people into greatness, um, and for Obama, you know, the fact that the matter is, he seems like a nice guy, seems like a dude you want to have a beer with, um, and for people who like him, it is all too easy for them to just sort of glom on to those to those stupid narratives, to the stupid bar chart that the that the White House has produced um, to sort of celebrate the extraordinary achievement of letting out more people than previous administrations, but it's not enough and it's not good enough and we, we shouldn't be satisfied with it. Better um, isn't necessarily good. I think that that's both the thing that I celebrate um, and that I uh, criticize like you do. I mean, I did a story um, for the show um, on a woman named Danielle Metz, and I might've mentioned her on this show before, who is serving three life sentences, wow. three life sentences. Her boyfriend was the kingpin in a drug operation, I believe in New Orleans. She ended up, um, I was there when she got out of prison, the day she got out, um, she'd been in for 23 years. Um, lovely woman. Her daughter was there to meet her. Her mom was still alive, but couldn't travel, uh, to Oak, to, to, um, Dublin, California, where she was in a women's facility there. And then she flew, she flew home and now she's kind of going into the halfway house and trying to rebuild her life in a, in a fantastic, um, lovely woman. So I'm happy that Barack Obama, uh, commuted her sentence. I mean, she was like, I had no other hope. Um, and she said, like, you know, look, if, if had it been uh, Mitt Romney, uh, I'd still be in prison. And she's right about that. Mm. Um, because you this is a, a great fault of Republicans who still to this day believe one has to be tough on crime. And the way of doing that is is putting low level offenders in prison uh, for life. The woman I spoke to, um, I guess she was at Harvard University, um, kind of lefty uh, woman used to be a judge, but she she's uh, lefty, righty, who doesn't make a difference. I mean, her she was handcuffed by these. I mean, not to use that metaphor. She was she was uh, handcuffed by by this so-called sentencing reform. The original version of sentencing reform uh -huh. was like the three strikes and things like that, mandatory yeah, minimums. Yeah, yeah. And she had no uh, discretion when it came to sentencing people. The law stated that somebody who she thought, like, you know, was not that bad of a person, probably shouldn't have been doing what they're doing, should be punished in some way, um, would get three life sentences. And, and you know, that is the stuff where I criticize Obama. This is that it's the end of his term. It's, you know, more more commutations than any president since Woodrow Wilson. Well, let's triple that. Let's quadruple that. And then at the same time, why have you not been working at for, for fundamental reform in these idiotic laws and the idiotic drug war? Why are dispensaries being closed? Closed. You know, why is why why are these signature supposedly liberal achievements coming in a symbolic way to to sort of burnish your image and your record? Everyone is celebrating this stuff. And look, I did a piece on this that was celebratory because I thought Danielle was great and I was happy she was out of prison and Obama should get um, some measure of credit for doing something that previous presidents haven't. Mm -hmm. But as a president who is admitted to to, you know, recreational drug use in college, as we've all done and, you know, didn't do the I didn't inhale thing or I am a, a sort of apostate from alcohol like George W. Bush was, you know, it's it's incumbent upon you at that point to make 
meaningful reform and make the case to the American people, to people like my mother, the people who don't understand this stuff. Um, no offense to my mother. I just, I just, I mean, I, I think she's probably a thousand times different she was, than she was on. Uh-huh. I was actually thinking about this on, uh, over Christmas, I had a cousin talking to an uncle about um, smoking pot and had this happened 20 years ago. I mean, everyone would be like, oh my God, she, the, the, the whole family's full of drug addicts. There was a casualness to a conversation about marijuana amongst people in my family, which I, is, is a huge sea change from 20 years ago. But the case has to be made to people that, you know, putting somebody in prison for three life sentences as an accomplice to a boyfriend's like drug ring. And this, the boyfriend seems like to, that he was a bad dude. Um, and you're like a 19, 19 year old girl. I mean, it is, it is not only disproportionate, it is immoral. Yeah. And I, so to, to, to Obama's credit, I'm happy that Danielle Metz, among a, a number of other people, are out. Um, but, but the structural uh, problems remain. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, one other thing, you know, the foreign policy obviously is, is significant. I think in addition to sort of talking about Obama's legacy, uh, folks are, um, Folks are talking about um, folks are also talking about sort of Trump and in the context of like drones, et cetera. um, The conversation has often been what is Donald Trump going to do with the drone program? Rest of the sentences, the drone program he inherited, the super empowered drone program that he inherited from the Obama administration, the the capacity of which has been expanded, the 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 supposed transparency, um, the secrecy that masquerades as transparency that the Obama administration has created. Um, and to, to give you one more um, sort of book for the, uh, for the count, um, Jamil Jaffer's uh, new book um, on the subject um, is one I just picked up and have only sort of pounded through the intro in the uh, first chapter in the last uh, couple of days um, when I find time to read it. Uh, <laughs> but it has already uh, been quite good. Um, and uh, I, I've certainly seen some of the interviews he's done uh, with folks about this. So that is probably probably worth a look. And, and someone has asked in the past, like, why why are you talking about drones in particular? Um, it, it's, it's not the exotic na- nature of the technology I'm concerned about. Um, it is transparency. Um, it is forthrightness. It's the it's the accountability of the administration and it's the responsibility to for for. Well, it's the fact that we should be aware of where we are engaged in conflict. Uh, and when in a year we are uh, sort of killing people in uh, any any one more than half a dozen countries, uh, people ought to know that um, they ought to care. Uh, and it, it shouldn't matter whether it's President Trump or, or President Obama. Um, we are uh, we're going long. Matt, you are you are over there. Um, perhaps we should uh, we should bring this in for a landing. Um, I suspect some idiot wrote something. Uh, we've uh, we've highlighted some good and some bad. But what, what do you got for me? One hand. Oh my God! I gotta, I gotta. I, I mean, there's. I mean, like, like every uh, uh, time that we do this, it's always an embarrassment of riches. Uh, mm. But you know, we're we're in this obsession right now that 2016 is particularly bad um, because of the uh, the election of um, Donald Trump and all the celebrity deaths uh, and all the celebrity deaths. Um, I agree that. Um, I don't want him to be president, and there's a lot of bad people, good people that have died. Um, but the internet culture that exists today that coddles and um, elevates uh, stupidity and outrage that we've talked about ad infinitum on the show, um, of course, went um, into overdrive when um, uh, Carrie Fisher died, who everyone is praising. Um, I, I, you know, I liked her in Star Wars. I just don't know what to say more than more than that. <laughs> um, but everyone's, you know, weeping in the streets as if um, Kim Jong-il just died. Um, and, you know, it's a sad thing. And somebody who is also sad about this was uh, Steve Martin, the actor 
uh, a brilliant writer and um, all around brilliant guy, uh, who uh, tweeted uh, something about his uh, friend uh, Carrie Fisher. They were they were very close. And he said, when I was a young man, Carrie Fisher, she was the most beautiful creature I had ever seen. She turned out to be witty and bright as well. And that's Steve Martin, of course, talking about his friend um, in saying that, you know, when he met her and when he saw her um, right around the time, I guess he was becoming famous at the, around the same time, he said, good God, this woman is fantastically beautiful. And then he met her and said, she's brilliant and, 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 uh, and funny, too. Uh, Steve Martin has since deleted that tweet. Oh boy! Uh, because um, a particular one, the person that really pushed this was a, a particular knuckle dragger named Claire Lensbaum at the Cut, which is owned by New York Magazine. It's the New York Magazine's blog uh, for all things idiotic. And uh, Carrie Fisher is defended against this uh, this indignity of being called pretty uh, by a um, repulsive monster. Uh, who writes for The Cut, and said that this is um, uh, sexist and horrible, and I cannot believe that somebody would ever say that she was a beautiful woman, and she was um, witty and bright. The thing that bothers me about this, I mean, there's a million things to bother me about this, and it's actually a very good piece that I tweeted over at a liberal website called The Daily Banter, uh, the headline of which is, if you're angry over Steve Martin's Carrie Fisher tribute, you're a fucking idiot, Uh, which I thought was pretty succinct, and I said, you know, I, I agree with you on that. Um, there's a bit of a, a backlash on this. But I think one of the bigger issues I have about this is, you know, because of the pace of all this stuff and because everybody wants to get their, you know, boiling hot takes out there um, to get their clicks and, and um, humiliate themselves and live uh, a life of a, um, you know, modern journalist who's just, you know, trawling for garbage and, 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 and you know, picking up this garbage and, 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 you know, getting clicks and getting getting likes and all this nonsense – is that nobody ever would ever ask uh, Steve Martin, like, hey, what do you mean by that? Are you actually saying that before you met her, you just thought, oh, my God, here's this beautiful woman in movies. And then I met her and was like, oh, my God, she's amazing and smart. And, and that's apparently offensive. But um, nobody asks him about this. Why would you ever do that? Why would you ever contact Steve Martin, contact his agent, rather than um, unleashing the mob and making Steve Martin, Steve Martin, of all people, delete yeah. a tweet? Um, and, you know, this is up there on the most read things on the cut um, uh, right below uh, uh, number nine, which is 15 of Carrie Fisher's best, most om- honest feminist quotes. Wow. Can't we just like her as an actress? I mean, do we have to make sure that her politics are in line with our own? Not, so we not good enough if they are. Her? If they are, then you, you get to do that. Um, I just like her. I like her uh, actressing when uh, she's got a British accent for the first twenty minutes of Star Wars, and then like just drops it. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she's and she's from Canarsie all of a sudden. <laughs> so, yeah, I can't believe it. No, I can't believe it. I mean, it's like go bra. It's like totally nuts, right? It's like a fucking slug. Yeah, speaking of the Carrie Fisher uh, thing, the New York Times got a lot of uh, uh, pushback because in their op-ed, or at least are online or something. Um, they had a picture of her as Princess Leah holding a gun towards the camera. Ah, uh, yes. Mm. And people were like, my God, she's holding a gun. Unbelievable. And, uh, it's not a it, gun. It calls uh, my daughter, who's now eight, when she first saw Star Wars, she might have been six or seven, I don't know. And uh, and she really got into it. I mean, I was never a Star Wars geek, and, uh, and I'm like, well, why do you like Star Wars so much? And she says, because the princess has a gun. <laughs> uh, you know, my daughter, who's five, is really into Star Wars now, too. She doesn't really get a lot of the stuff that's going on. 
But uh, she did, honest to goodness, point out to me that she liked that uh, Princess Leia was the badass in it and was like going around yeah. shooting things huh. and kicking things. And um, of course, the you said the the gun thing. It's funny how debased our cultures become. That I actually heard about the same New York Times thing criticized that they uh, had a picture of her wearing a bikini. And um, that was, of course, as objectifying Carrie, her. Well, as course. Carrie Fisher pointed yeah. out, she was uh, kidnapped by by the the giant sweaty slug in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who looks like Sidney Greenstreet. Uh, he's just like, you know, what what the hell's his name? Uh, Job of the Hut. Yes. And uh, and is uh, forced into this, and then of course takes it off when she frees herself from the shackles yeah. of um, well, celestial that, she, uh, slavery. She she chokes him out with a chain that she's uh, ah yes that yeah, she's yeah, on. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, no, that she's, was really good. She's, she was pretty add, badass. Oh, God, I want to add um, to the summit he wrote this, just a headline uh, going on uh, the same kind of theme as uh, Moyan uh, pointed out. That's uh, from Jezebel. I was pointed to it by Gavin McInnes, so you can just imagine. But um, Serena Williams is engaged to Alexis Ohanian. Wait, wait, what was the rest of that headline? He's ele- she's and ele- I don't know how I feel. Uh. <laughs> Kara Brown. Hey, Kara Brown. Hey, Kara Brown. I got, I got, I got some advice for you. It's career, you know, career advice or just whatever. If you don't know how you feel about some celebrities like getting hitched, don't fucking write about yeah, it. Yeah, shut up. Just don't yeah. fucking shut write up. about it. Okay? Yeah, moron. Shut the. Uh, yeah, so yeah. Uh, that was one. But the uh, the one that I actually wanted to add is a guy that um, at least two of the three of us have been on television with. Uh, John DeVore uh, plays a liberal on uh, on uh, on Red Eye. Uh, with some uh, frequency, wrote a piece that I uh, the used to past headline. tense, past tense. What's that? Uh, yeah, past tense. I think he past tense. Yeah, he used to play something. <laughs> yeah. Else, yeah. Uh, so wrote a piece for Esquire. Imagine this is the bullet that you're going to fire here. A liberal talking head reveals the truth about Fox News. Oh boy! Right. This is a guy who's been on Fox News. Eh, probably less than either one of the three of us. I'm guessing. Uh, over the years, maybe <laughs> maybe on the equal parts with uh, Moynihan, since um, uh, Michael's uh, busy doing whatever you know, teen porn, uh, yeah. the whole thing that he does. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you read this thing, and he absolutely reveals nothing except that he went on Fox a bunch of times, mostly Red Eye, which he didn't even name, and he didn't name anybody's uh, shows, and didn't even like report any green room gossip. There's less green room gossip from Fox than we provide here on the Fifth Column. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, we we've got the goods. That's damn it. it. That's it. This is this is the price that the, that he pays for on uh, going on again. It's just uh, it's. Uh, the thing uh, about John uh, is, very, I th- I, he worked at. I think he was working at some website that was owned by News Corp. He must have left that uh, too. It was uh, some. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was it was a uh, it was a kind of jokey website uh, that they they tried to start. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, Kate Street. Uh, no, I, I, if you're going to burn a bridge, like, use a match. Like, do something. Yeah. Uh, John, yeah. so next yeah. time I see you, not on Red Eye. Uh, come on now. Well, yeah. well, shouts out to the homie, um, Alexis Ohanian. Um, I, I uh, Congrats to him. I don't know that any person in the history of the United States has so quickly earned himself the respect, admiration, and hatred of gentlemen in barbershops around the country. Who's it? So quickly as uh, Alexis Ohanian, um, who the co-founder of Reddit, who is oh, going yeah, to yeah, be yeah, marrying yeah. Uh, one Serena Williams. Well, so oh, good, yeah, good for yeah, him. Yeah, Congrats. Yeah. I hope I hope they're happy. I'll, I'm going to send him a, a DM on, on Twitter. Maybe we'll still be friendly and he'll he'll talk to me and, and yeah. we'll be friends again and we'll go to tennis matches. It'll be really cool. Um, last thing, uh, the ease of Dylan Roof, uh, a, a post at BuzzFeed <laughs> that will take you 
eight um, painful minutes to read. Uh, it is by a woman whose first name is Bim. I am not going to pronounce <laughs> her last name. I sent Bim two emails in like the last 12 to 18 hours because I really actually wanted to talk to her about this piece. Um, I, I am very... Oftentimes we talk about the sort of the contrived outrage, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that there is something particularly ugly and awful about taking a tragedy like this, this shooting at, uh, at the AME church um, in, uh, in North Carolina by Dylan Roof, um, who, who shows up at a church and he, and he mercilessly guns down um, people, um, to take that tragedy and to try to extract from it um, sort of a, your own, your own um, weird white privilege narrative um, and to do so in a way that I think here is sort of dishonest, um, and it is dishonest by by way of excluding details that you almost certainly know. Um, and the the premise here is that um, Dylan Roof is particularly cool and collected um, when he is giving his sort of when he's in the courtroom and when he's being interrogated and he's doing it because he's white and he went into that church and he knew he wouldn't be accosted or stopped or questioned because he was white and his white privilege makes it possible for him to just be really cool and to not have to worry about his life. But black people in America have to worry every single day that this church shooting was horrible and terrible, but it's not a surprise because black bodies are routinely broken. Of course, borrowing a metaphor from Ta-Nehisi Coates. This is, this is, it's, it's not just silly. Um, it is actually kind of gross. Um, and uh, I think that people should get outraged about things that, that matter. Um, and it's, it's worth um, sort of casting a little bit of shade, uh, shame uh, in her direction um, and maybe throwing some shade there as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, you can go read it or not. Um, I, I would say not. Um, and perhaps at some point she will uh, she'll talk and and we can we can draw. Yeah, this I, a I, I sent this to Camille and I as I pointed out, it's at the ease of Dylan Roof that he, um, you know, is is, uh, you know, he's confident he'd be safe and protected throughout his trial. I just pointed out to Camille, I was like, he'll probably get the death penalty. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I don't know what the ease is. Well, but the, my, my objection to this, by the way, is a weird objection. Um, and I don't know. We have to find a, a name for it. We have to we have to figure out what to call this. And it is the style of writing that is influenced by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Mm. It is this kind of, you know, over-egged, um, you know, uh, I mean, I'll read this. This is a pull quote from, from that piece. Dylan Roof possessed, alongside his racist and murderous inclinations, ease. Yeah. You know, and then it's, it's, it's hyphenated ease. It's like, what it's, it, this is nonsense mas, mas, masquerading as profundity. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's a, a, you know, italicized depth and heft that doesn't actually exist and doesn't deserve uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. So it's like, you know, enough of this stuff. No, it makes writing. him a great deal more, uh, more grand than he is. Um, yeah. I, his ease, I would generally refer to as aloofness. And the fact of the matter is when the kid stepped outside of the church, he, he had or, like bullets in his gun and told the police um, that he had planned to kill himself. Uh, yeah. So perhaps that ease is he knew he was dead. Perhaps the willingness to confess is, yeah, he, he is confessing yeah. he did this thing. And it's worth noting that he, in the room while he's being interrogated and maybe this nuance doesn't matter to people. He was uncomfortable saying what he did and said Mm -hmm. he didn't want to talk about it. But at any rate, there is no defending um, the, the ugliness of the act, but also the ugliness of this particular dispatch. So with that, I think we bring our, uh, our year to a close our year with you 
doing this thing to a close. Um, it has been a, a pleasure to do it, uh, and I, I know we'll be back in 2017. Uh, I'm not going to tell you when yet because that would uh, that would spoil the fun and the surprise. Um, but we will be back. We're going to do some awesome, cool, great stuff, and we've got great, great guest appearances lined up. Um, so it will be bigger and better and sexier. Um, do you gentlemen have any uh, final thoughts for 2016, or are you just going to go now? Thanks for listening, and thanks for um, the the all the positive reviews on iTunes and the number of people that have listened uh, has impressed uh, me and heartened me and impressed all of us. And I hope that uh, we haven't lost uh, too many of you today talking about Russia for seven and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. It was the Ben Hur of Russia episode. <laughs> <laughs> that is hey, the man. name of the podcast. All right, we're done. See you later. Bye. We, we know of new methods of attack. Trojan Horror, the fifth